This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The editor-in-chief of the very athletic Bay Area, Tim Kawakami. Kawakami, who has covered the NBA for over two decades. It's time now for the TK Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, Tim Kawakami here, TK Show, recording from the home studio by myself. Super producer Tanika Smothers is not recording this, so who the hell knows how this is going to go. I have to learn how to do this. I've done this a few other times, but we figure we bring a huge guest on for me to scramble up the sound. Uh, why not? Have uh, my friend, Bay Area, you know, man about town, uh, who's trying to go through all the platforms he's been on. I can't even count all of them. It's uh, the Defector Zone and various other places. It's Ray Ratto. Ray, how you doing today? Thanks for being on. So Tanika's not here? No. Yeah, you, you can well, just shut it off. I'm, I'm not doing this <laughs> without her. She said, Ratto, forget this. Like, I'll, give me give me somebody else. I will not oh, do that. Oh, she worships me as the great Nordic <laughs> god I am. She did not say that. This is okay. me doing a run. I'm going to have to start recording on my own. I haven't recorded on my own a few times, and we'll see how this one goes. I might blow it so poorly that we'll never do it again. But, Ray. It's uh, all the money they blew on Tyler Kepner. <laughs> I got no comment on that, but you're free to comment how you wish. Speaking of these interesting media issues, since you've been at the Chronicle, at MC Sports Bay Area, at uh, CanBR, at 95.7, I, I don't know anyone else who's got as varied uh, a resume, a background as you've got. Just, I mean, just generally, let's say sports media, where do you see all this going? Are, are you think it's going in a healthy way? Do you think there's some dangers ahead for everybody? There's lots of dangers ahead for everybody because fewer and fewer people are going to have, have access to the things that actually make money. And if you can't make money, you can't really do what you do. So yeah, I'm I'm not optimistic, but not because the good old days were so much better. Um, there was only one way to to do this before. And now there's a hundred, but most of them, you know, don't generate income. So I think there's a whole lot left to learn by a lot of people. And a lot of good people are going to end up losing jobs because of it between now and then. Already have, right? Already have. Yeah. Oh, no. I mean, the, you know, the, the bodies are piled outside the house like cordwood. I've but, always put. If I always believe, and I still do, I understand completely what you're saying, that there is this audience has not changed, right? The number, the percentage, whatever the paying customer is, has not, you know, the portion of the population has not changed. It's just trying to figure out how to kind of get them to the spot where they're going to pay you money. Would you agree with that? I, maybe it's even bigger. Like, I think the numbers might be even bigger now for a certain kind of at least some brand of sports coverage, some version of what they've always wanted. I think the numbers can always be gamed, so I don't trust them. And I only know anecdotally that fewer and fewer 
members of my son's generation are paying attention to sports in the same consumable ways as they used to. And I think that's going to be the next great adjustment because I think cable is fading as a factor, um, but I haven't seen anything to replace it for generating money. And until somebody figures out how to do that, I think you're going to see the numbers that people like to count go down. I don't know if that's an accurate number, though, because you can game numbers. Oh, stream, like, wait, the TV, like streaming, right? I mean, how? what do those numbers really mean? That's what there's a huge two strikes about that right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, and radio is the same way. I mean, just it's the the key to numbers is who's doing the counting and how what what base they're operating in. But I think the big worry for sports in general to answer your question is whether the 18 to 25s are going to be as interested in all of this as the 25 to 40s or the 40s to 60s, you know, however you break down the the demographics. I, I think that's a wild card. And I don't think anybody currently in charge of a major media operation understands any of that. No, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to know. I mean, just giving some benefit of the doubt, it's hard to know. Well, let's say a young Ray Ratto, you know, 23 years old, you know, coming up in the business right now. Uh, what would you think about? What would you want to do? What would you think you'd end up doing? Well, me, I mean, my gift is writing. I'd like to figure out a way to make money writing because it's the thing I'm most comfortable with. I don't know if that's the most logical avenue to take. Um, I, I'm i almost more grateful that I'm at the end of this than the start, hmm. because you when, I, when we started, you knew that you know if you could write and you could figure out a way to get a job, you'd be fine. That changed about 10 years ago. And now, I don't know what the avenue is. I don't think it's television anymore because I think television, you know, unless you want to include streaming, is another you know bygone technology. And I think there are fewer and fewer jobs there as well. So I, I think in general, if I was twenty three, I'd try to figure out how to look for something else because I don't think sports media is getting bigger. Sports may be getting bigger. I mean, I you may be right, but I don't think sports media is. And by media, I mean, you know, the transmission of ideas from, you know, your avenue to, to listeners or readers that will pay. And that's the key, because I think there are a lot of jobs out there, but they don't pay anything. And at some point, most people want to live normal lives and getting paid what you what you get paid if all you do is blog or if all you do is podcast, that's a tough nut to make. You mentioned writing and it does strike. It's something that hits me every time. I, I mean, I look at the aggregation sites. I do because sometimes it just helps. It speeds the process. It's why they exist. want to see a headline. You know, I don't want to lose something that's people are responding to or listening to or, or want to read about, but Ray, the writing is so bad and it is remarkably bad. And I don't want to, you know, call anybody out, but I, I it, it's rare where you see something written and I don't, you know, not just the worst aggregation sites, the biggest aggregation sites where it's anything. And, you know, 
Defector does some of this. It's a whole other different thing. They put their own spin on it. They do their, you know, off, often do a lot of their own reporting. So I'm going to put Defector to the side on that. Uh, I might have some criticism for Defector later, but I'm not right now. Um, oh, knock yourself out. Yeah, no, I know. I, I didn't mean to go that way. I just wanted to I, just I make sure I wasn't leaving them out in, in this. Yeah. Case. But the, is writing matter anymore, Ray? I mean, can you see it? Or, or, or will there always be some sort of market for well-crafted, reported, analytically-minded, maybe, you know, writing in, in, in this new world? There will always be a need for it. I don't know how much of a market there is. And I will tell you a story about when my daughter was in high school about 13 years ago. She had a couple of friends over um, on a Saturday night, Sunday morning sleepover. And there were two boys who were staying downstairs. So Sunday morning, I get up early, make coffee. I go out to the driveway to get the newspaper. And I come back in and they're starting to wake up. And I know they don't want to read any other part of the paper, but I offer them the sports section. And one of the two says, oh, Mr. Ratto, nobody reads anymore. <laughs> so I, I think there's kind of a mental block for a lot of people, but everybody reads. I mean, stuff's printed. Is there an appreciation for writing? You have to want to appreciate it. In the past, it was therefore you couldn't escape it. Now you have to do your own looking. It's like the difference between Twitter used properly and now what is X. Whereas if you used it properly, you could look to links for things that maybe you, you know, didn't know were out there. But eventually it became not about the shouting, but in terms of looking for stuff, you were only looking for the things you were interested yeah. in. So you couldn't be surprised by anything. And I think that has a pretty deleterious effect on people's level of curiosity about a lot of things. So, I mean, that's part of the adaptation, too. Am I surprised that the writing is not better? No, because I don't think there's a market for really good writing that is robust and energetic and growing. There's still good writing out there, but you have to look a lot harder for it. And the longer you live in a generation that's run by a phone, the less interested you are in going to seek it. Yeah. And it's also that, the, you know, there's kind of contradictory stuff here. Like book sales have never been better, right? There's, uh, and, you know, ebooks or even, you know, just regular books people are reading. It's just this interesting uh, splitting. I think just this, this real severe splitting of literary minded, you know, maybe purchases and certain the high, house of highlights just get through scroll, 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 TikTok. Uh, and I, I'm all, I'll just throw, I, I blame editors for a lot of this. I think editors and newspapers were kind of the last to see this. They were just holding on to their job. It became a survival test instead of the what's next test. And I think, you know, we've discussed this. The one thing I've always, you know, you've done new things. You've always been, you know, you, you went to TV before any other sports writer in the Bay Area. Um, I think I'm okay at figuring out what the next thing is, but I don't think editors in large part, not to want to say every single one of them, but I think we've worked for editors who are just holding tight. They just want to get through the day. And you're, yet they're the ones who've made most of the business decisions. And a lot of these business decisions have been horrendous on every step of the way. Well, you worked at the first newspaper to have a website at the San Jose Mercury News. And they immediately said, you know what, this is just an adjunct to the print. 
The print's what makes us money because we've got 22 and 23% profit every year. We're not messing with that. And so they essentially gave it away. And once you give something away, you can't charge for it later because people won't pay for it. And now you have people who, you know, there are a lot of newspapers out there with websites, but a lot of them put up paywalls and people just go, oh, it's a paywall. Well, then I don't want to read it that badly. I'll find a summary of it somewhere else. And I think that's rampant. And it's because of what you said is that editors have notoriously been conservative and fearful. And at a time when vision really matters, nobody sitting in those chairs has any. So, I mean, I'm with you on that. They've, you know, they've bollocked this up and now they don't know how to unbollock it. I know you, uh, like me, you don't always want to wallow in the positivity of things. But I am curious, you've had you know, a career that spans so many interesting things in the Bay Area and nationally and have done so many interesting things, written about so many interesting people. What's your, what would you say your favorite time of your career? You know, the thing, the story, the storyline, the season. Uh, when you look back, I go, yeah, that was kind of when, I, and I do that sometimes to my own stuff. You know, I just try to try to remember what it felt like during that period. What, can you list one or two things that you think back? Okay. That was when it felt the best. Um, my first year covering baseball, because everything was new and I was not yet in a position where I could pretend I knew what I was talking about so that I was more inquisitive about the things I saw and I worked harder because of it. And I was lucky that my first year covering baseball, 87, the Giants went to the playoffs. And as a result, I was covering something that people were interested in reading and I was interested in learning about. I thought I was much worse in 1988, not because the team wasn't as good, but because I thought I knew more than I knew. And it took me a while to understand that the people who do this, who play and manage and coach and you know run business operations, they're always going to know more than me. And it took me a year of foundering around until I figured that out. Um, I thought the year that Bird and Magic played in the Final Four, which was the last year that college basketball was just sort of a regional boutique thing, was fun because you could see that this was going to take off because of those two guys. Uh, they are the ones who made the NC2A tournament an extraordinary cash cow, and they did it in one year. And that was at Salt Lake City, right? That's where that Final yeah. Four was, in that little arena in Utah. Yeah. Um, in fact, I think there was only one more year after that that they had it in the gym. After that, it was stadiums. Yep. And so you could see how the business took over the sport. And that became true of everything. And now if you are covering sports at all and you don't understand business to at least a certain extent, you're lost because too much of this is business now. And if you don't have a rudimentary understanding of how people make money in this business, you don't know what you're looking at and you don't know why you're looking at it. Well, ask you, I mean, I think I might be sort of known as someone who writes about the popular stuff and I, I, it just kind of happens naturally. It's what I do. Um, I don't write a ton about the stuff that a lot of people don't care about. I Maybe I wish I could, I just don't. 
Uh, where, where do you fall on that, Ray? You've written about some obscure things, but you've written a lot about a ton of the stuff that people care about. You've talked about them. You're on the radio. And I know you, you're on the radio and you're told you must talk about the 49ers or you must talk about, you know, the the big you know Warriors issue. Do you think that's wrong? Do you think that's – how is that workable in this world? Um, they call it, you know, just play the hits, play the hits, play yeah. the hits. And the only thing you get if all you do is play the hits is you get a slowly diminishing audience because – Eventually, you run out of stuff to say about who the 49er quarterback is going to be. Not today, and, though. Not today. No, not today. today <laughs> this today will not be that day. This will not be that day. Yeah, today is a legitimate news day for that. But all the days when it's not legitimate, if you're a listener, even if you're trapped in your car driving home, and there are fewer of those than ever before, you're going to go listen to something else. At, at, some, at some point, you get tired of it. So I think you... I think the next generation of people has to be more conversant on other sports. Um, soccer is, whether people like it or not, we've seen now that it's becoming a money-generating operation in the U.S. The U.S. women's team was an enormous story. Lionel Messi coming to enter Miami, it's a, it's a story. I mean, you're going to see more and more of it on television because of stuff like that. So if you're going to be a general columnist, and there aren't many of those left, you're going to have to know about that stuff. You don't get a choice. Um, you're you're probably going to have to know less about boxing because there isn't much of that going on anymore. And if you like something, you should cover it by all means. But I think the do the football, do the basketball, do the baseball guy is going to find out that the market's going to run away from him or her sooner rather than later. So you've got to be more nimble about what you're looking at. And, and yet I, in, in the Bay Area, I think we've talked about it. it I, I really feel it's telescoped in, you know, I used to do Sharks columns. I used to write about Cal basketball, Cal football, Stanford football. And I do not, you know, it's, you know, I have a different job now where we're really, really going on, you know, the stuff that's big. And it just, again, it, it suits my mentality. I'm not complaining about it a bit. But the Bay Area just seemed, you know, the Cal and Stanford programs basically go away so, you know, unbelievably that the Pac-12 goes away. I really believe Cal and Stanford were a huge part of that, by the way. I, if they were a strong, you know, imperative team for USC to want to play, USC doesn't isn't as interested in going to the Big Ten. The, the Pac-12 gets bigger. That's a whole other discussion. But yeah, no, it's, but you're, it's but Warriors, you're... 49ers, and Giants. That's, that's the Bay Area right now. And to a lesser extent, the Giants than the other two. Yes, exactly, um, exactly. But you you raised an interesting point because yeah, college sports in the Bay Area is largely more abundant now. And this was before the Pac-12 became the Pac-4. Um, it's going on in L.A. because USC and UCLA don't leave for the Big Ten if there is a vibrant West Coast college sports interest. And people who follow Stanford and they talk about um, – Olympic sports and non-revenue sports. You can't monetize that if you're running a website. Um, and that's the problem is that there's a lot of stuff out there to write and a lot of stuff out there to talk about. There's endless numbers of subjects. But unless you're working for yourself, you have to report to somebody who wants to see money hit the table. And there, there isn't enough 
available money for that stuff yet. I'm going to play some hits. We just mentioned it. Uh, a yeah. report out of, uh, I think it was NFL Network, Tom Pelissaro, that Trey Lance is not going to be the backup. It's Sam Darnold. They made that decision, and they are 49ers are going to look to see what they can get in a trade for Trey Lance. I am not – nobody should be shocked by any of this. No. Uh, they've basically been kind of hinting at this. It's Kyle Shanahan, we've gotten to know him pretty well. <laughs> He's this is the kind of way he he does things. I think the option was there for Trey Lance to win this job, but it didn't happen. Uh, Sam Darnold was always going to be the security blanket. Uh, Four nice quarterbacks, Ray. It's always something worth talking about. Is this the whole Trey Lance saga? Are you as intrigued by it as Four Niner fans? Are you? Do you think it's boring? Do you think it's important? Where are you on the whole Trey Lance thing? When there is a development like there was, I think it's fascinating. The problem with the Four Niner quarterback topic is people want to talk about it, or we think people want to talk about it every day, and. No. I think what's fascinating about this is not Trey Lance, yes or no. It's Kyle Shanahan's worldview of the position, which is different than almost everybody else's. He spent a lot and risked a lot to get this guy. And he made a snap judgment on him that he's farther back than we think he is. And between that and his injury, I think Kyle Shanahan has learned that you can't gift any piece of that position to anybody if you're not sure you're going to get something out of it. And he learned that again last year when he had to trot Josh Johnson out for the NFC title game. I think he's significantly more conservative about that position than nearly every other coach in the league. And I think he's comfortable with that which is why I'm also not surprised that Trey Lance is the odd man out. Because he's, when got, he, he's got Brock Purdy, too. I mean, that's a huge part of this, right? I mean, if Brock Purdy did not do what he did at the end of last season, oh, I don't no know question. that Trey Lance is a starter, but it's a different conversation. Oh, no. It's, well, Trey Lance is, you know, at least the backup, maybe even the starter. Who knows? But Kyle Shanahan, it seems to me, worries less about what other people think of him people outside the business think of him because he's got double secret immunity from Jed York. He can't get fired unless he starts, you know, you know, stealing Jed's car out of the parking lot every day. And even then probably not. He gets the NFC championship game. He can steal Jed's car. I think that would be allowed actually. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and I think because of that, he doesn't mind rectifying what he decides is a mistake and doing it quickly because there is nobody in the building to even raise the issue with him. Jed doesn't want to. Um, the next time he has to sit behind a podium to explain a coaching change, he'd like to be 70 one minute. <laughs> um, there is no more secure coach in all of sports other than maybe Andy Reid than than, than uh, Kyle Shanahan. So he doesn't have to worry about any backlash because the only person who reports to him or who he reports to actually in a weird way reports to him because Jed's going to walk into the, uh, the draft room and go, what do you need? Yeah, uh, sandwich, Jed. All right, I'll be right back. Well, maybe not that. Maybe not that. It's it, In terms of football judgment? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Jed doesn't get to He's go not in, serving him sandwiches. Really like, He's not serving him sandwiches. Yeah, I really like that tackle from East Tennessee State. Jed, go out and get me a sandwich. <laughs> he 
you're you're stuck on the sandwich thing. Now you're making me hungry for sandwiches, Ray. That's how you do this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, Kyle is a unique personality. Uh, and it, it's a little bit different than people are used to. I think I used to talk to Billy Bean about this all the time. That like the 49ers just always seem to react to, like, you know, this was the old 49ers. Where, like they react to everything that happened and they'd want to do something to, 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 you know, argue it or answer it or explain it or knock it down. And they just don't do that with Shanahan. I'll throw Lynch in there. I mean, I think John is a little more certainly talkative and a little more eager to have his viewpoint out there or the team's viewpoint. But Kyle doesn't do that. And it really baffles people who try to write about him who don't know him, where he just is going to do his thing and he's okay changing his mind. Certainly on the quarterback, he's done it many times. So I said, he walked into this job thinking the next quarterback was going to be Kirk Cousins. And that changed, you know, when he got Jimmy Garoppolo and it changed again and it changed again. And I do think, it, I mean, does that remind you of anybody or does that strike you in any different way? Like, you know, the way Kyle operates in a world where everyone's supposed to be, you know, on pins and needles and the nervous system is reacting to every little thing that splashes on social media. And he just doesn't. It is very much um, a, a direct ratio to your level of job security. Andy Reid doesn't do any of that. Bill Belichick doesn't do it. Terry Francona with the Cleveland Guardians doesn't do it because nobody's firing him. Um, If you are secure in your position, and very few people in that position are, you can be the guy who answers your question forthrightly and then waits for you to misunderstand the answer. Because Kyle Shanahan, and I don't know, you may not agree with this, but I think it's true. He will often tell you what he's thinking Secure in the knowledge that you're not going to believe it. <laughs> so he basically, he hides in plain, in plain sight. That's not bad. Yeah. I would say he doesn't care whether you believe it or not. So he can just say it. Like that's, that's a different, I know what you're saying, but it's like, they're not going to understand or believe me. So I'm just going to say it. And yeah. there's no, freedom he, in that. There's great he, freedom. He, in mi- that. he misleads you with the truth. <laughs> Nicely done. And, and, and no, I, I, and I, and I think he's done that. Almost since the day he got here, it's that Jed gave him the building and he gave him a six year contract to run the building. Nobody report, nobody gets to tell Kyle Shanahan anything about football. I mean, not even not even John Lynch. John Lynch might be a guy who will discuss stuff with him. But if they have a decision to make, John is going to defer to Kyle. And that's just it's in the contract. It, you know, it literally is in the contract that yeah, oh no, I mean the head and coach so makes you, the head coach makes the final decision. You know, they, they can discuss it and they can agree that they're gonna, you know, both have something to say, but when it comes down to it, the contract says that it's it's Kyle Shanahan. Oh well, absolutely. And you know, when you have that, you don't have to worry about what the outside world thinks. I mean, and the only way that changes is if all of a sudden he's five and twelve three years in a yes, row. Yes. So you have to be supremely confident in what you do, but you also have to be supremely secure in that there aren't going to be any power struggles in the building. Certainly not 
in the part of the building that you're concerned with. And this is a team that's had them, right? I mean, it's, you know, Harbaugh and Balky and Jed, you know, weighing in and all these other Chip Kelly and whoever else. It's just been through that. And I do think Jed figured out he didn't like it very much. He wasn't good at it. And no, he, he, hated lucked, it. he yeah. lucked out, you know, whatever you want to say about Lynch and Shanahan. They have been very stable and they've won a lot of games. They're going to have to win a Super Bowl at some point for them to be remembered, you know, incredibly fondly. Uh, but I think that this has been everything Jetta could possibly have wanted. And he's, ain't, oh. yeah, you're right. He ain't firing him. He is not firing him no matter, Jed, I mean, no matter was, what happens this season. Jed was lucky, but he was also purposeful. And as much as I hate to give owners credit for anything, you love owners. You love he, owners. He did, but he did two things. He fell in love with Kyle Shanahan. And he fell in love with him to such an extent that he gave him the deed to the building. Nobody does that with a first-year head coach. Nobody. Anywhere. You know, because owners want to be involved. They want to be in the draft room. They want to make decisions. They want to listen to the discussions. Jed, for whatever reason, had been kicked around so much over Harbaugh, over Kelly, over Tom Sula. Um, he just said, please do this so I never have to talk to those weasels again. And Kyle Shanahan, even without a Super Bowl, has come true on that. So they are of one mind more than ever. And it's Some, take an awful lot. Somewhat interesting thing is there is certainly a lot of people around the lake who think that Josh McDaniels was actually the first choice for this. Uh, and they couldn't figure out the GM. He had, a, you know, it, I think, uh, you know, the guy, Ziegler, couldn't leave at the time. There was some weird little concoction that didn't quite work out. So they could have had Josh. I mean, I know he likes, I mean, there's no question. Jed has like, I think McDaniels was second for the Harbaugh hire. Uh, and that would have been interesting. He, a, a Josh McDaniels 49er coaching situation would have been pretty interesting. It would have been a disaster. <laughs> Another way to say it. And not because he is necessarily a terrible coach, but so much of what the 49ers are now are based on the fact that there aren't two people in charge of anything. In the football end, there's one guy. It's not a discussion, not an argument. It's one guy. And it is Jed's great fortune that the guy who's in charge has a real good mind, not only for X's and O's, but for roster building. Um, I don't know if he's as good on the salary cap, but they have people who can do the math. But the, he found the one guy who was the one-stop shop for everything the 49ers need. And it's a huge advantage. The Giants are going through a weird time now, you know, still over 500. I guess they're still got a wild-card spot, but that's certainly no, – not, not Yeah, they're giving it away. They're uh, a half they, game out. They're clearly not as good as the Phillies, the Braves, or these teams that they've been playing recently. Um, you think Farhan Saidi is a good general manager? Do you think Gabe Kapler is a good manager? Do you think this this continues? Is there growth somewhere in there? Or is this worth a question mark on the whole thing? I think it's a bigger question than that. I think it's a question of who Greg Johnson is. I knew you were going to say the owner. I knew you were going to say the owner. Well, but I mean, how involved is he? How secure is he in making a change? And if so, to what? I mean, he fell into this because his dad owned the team. So it's not like he was born to baseball. So not knowing what his worldview is, 
it's hard to know how secure Farhan is. I think Farhan's probably better at his job than Kapler is at his, but the two are pretty inextricably linked because Kapler all of a sudden can't bring players into the game that aren't in his dugout at the start of the day. So he's working with the cards that Farhan gives him. And the 40 and the Giants are no longer a big budget team. You know, they made their one run at, at Aaron Judge, and that was a, you know, that was a joke from the start. Then they made the run at Carlos Correa, and at the last minute suddenly got cold feet. And so once again, this is a team with no game changer. It's just that, you know, there are a bunch of guys. There were a bunch of guys two years ago when they won 107. There were a bunch of guys last year when they won 81. There are a bunch of guys now when they're going to win 87. And until they either figure out how to make their farm system productive or they actually lay out the kind of money it takes to become a better version of the San Diego Padres, I really don't know. And again, I, and I think a lot of that is in the will of the owner. And since it's not Charlie anymore, because he just sits in Florida and Writes gives checks. money to conservatives, <laughs> um, the question is, where's Greg on? Where's Greg on any of this? And he does not make himself readily available to explain that stuff. And maybe that's good because you don't really want a guy who isn't conversant on baseball to be talking baseball but it leaves an enormous gap in what the Giants' present is and what their future is. Because, it's not yeah. – I mean, there's other ahead. owners too. I mean, I keep you know, and, and told that there are you – know, you know, the Johnsons do not own a majority of this of this team. So, you know, there are uh, partnership decisions. And I think that, that, that goes to your thing, though. It's, the more diffuse it becomes, the harder it is to say, okay, let's stop this and go do something else. It took some sort of amount of, you know – opinion to get together and say we're going to do the Farhan Zaidi way and that's a very very you know direct decision about how things are going to go and it's going to be hard to stop that and change I I, I know I, I would not do it myself I think it's I'm pretty clear about that I think Farhan is is a really smart guy and it's going to be really hard almost impossible to get somebody better than him but if it goes down that road it's going to be hard for you know, when you have somebody with 30% and somebody with 22% and somebody with 18% somebody with 6% and somebody with 5%, uh, and some of that is conjoined by families having these percentages, it's yeah. hard to like say, okay, this is what the Giants ownership does. It's it's hard to move that that battleship sometimes. No, but, and, but the other thing is that when you have that many partners, it takes an awful lot of mismanagement to get them all together and overthrow the power structure. And the power structure right now is Greg Johnson. Yep. I agree. Um, I agree. Rob so that, Dean's that, in there. That Rob Dean's in there. Yeah. yeah. That's Rob why Dean's I would in. go to him first. I think what will do what would change dramatically or what get would change the, the, the way this feels if that crowd count starts really ticking down. Uh it started off very poor, rose up when they were, you know, playing well in, in you know, May and June. And now it's ticking down. It's a lot of it is opponent driven, but you start seeing some 24,000s, 25,000s, and we all know if they announce 24 or 25,000, it's probably 18 in the park. doesn't matter. They're, they're getting the tickets for it, so they don't care. Yeah. But it looks doesn't look good. Um, is that is that crowd count ever going to come back to 38, right? Do you see that, or is that maybe gone forever in San Francisco? Well, I mean, I think you referred to it in 
when they were when they're going good in May and June, they were 34, 35 pretty regularly. I think the 40,000 um, is a, is going to be a rarity now. Um, they all, they'll have to have a great giveaway, you know, like a car for every third chicken buyer. <laughs> I think they're doing that now. But, you know, they're, you know, I think when they're playing well, they can get they can get 35, 36 nightly, which, as you say, translates probably into 30,000 hard, hard humans. Um, but I don't think the days where they just said, we got 41,000 tonight. I think those days are probably gone. And part of the reason why I think they're probably gone is because like every other team in baseball, the Giants don't like walk-up crowds. It's harder to know how many people to usher, how many concession stands to open, how many people to put in the parking lot. Um, they would rather have it, you know, just be, just tell us what the season ticket count is. And the Giants are at a stage now where I think if they're going to get to 40, they're going to have to have big walk-ups. So they've got to get, they, they either have to reacquaint themselves to that idea or they have to live with crowds in the below 30s. Well, that is the issue, though. I mean, they had walk-ups when there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of people working in downtown San Francisco and just get off of work and go to the game. And that does not exist anymore. There's a fraction of that, you know, of that number is available to go to game. So uh, we shall see. But you know what? Shohei Otani could change that, right? I mean, is this a, is this a team that should pay and can pay $600 million over an 11-year deal to Shohei Otani go, going into his early 40s? Yes, and they won't do it. <laughs> I think they're um, going to they're going to offer him a pretty good number, right? They, oh, they I think so. To, they have to. I mean, I think you know, I think the Cubs will offer him a huge number. I think the Angels will certainly offer him a huge number. The Dodgers will. Um, just the money you can get in the Japanese market for him makes it an excellent investment, no matter how much you're paying him. So it's really up to him to decide. Two different things. One, am I going to the place with the most money? And two, since all I really know is Anaheim, where's the place that I will be most comfortable? And however, he defines his comfort level. And that could be the Dodgers. I mean, you look at you look at where they are every year. Hell, it could be Atlanta. You know, I mean, Atlanta, I don't know, is it I, I don't think John Malone's a guy who'd like to pay six hundred million no. for a baseball player, but you know, they can't rely on winning the World Series every year and getting 40,000 routinely. I mean, it just, it depends on how visionary you are as an owner to decide how well you can monetize Asia. And if you know how to do that, I mean, you won't be able to count the amount of money you get. Well, I think those New York Yankees might be involved in that too. Uh, oh, yeah, sure, but you know, and, and the Mets, Steve Cohen. I mean, obviously, like we can name the teams that will be, you know, in yeah. this market. But I go back, you know, I, you know, I think we all do. We go back to the teams that he invited to pitch him the first time around, uh, and the Giants were in that group. You know, Mariners, Dodgers, Angels, obviously the Cubs, and there was one other team I forget what it was, but. um Texas Rangers, Texas, you know, Yankees were not in it. I don't believe. Yeah. No, Braves they weren't. Were not, yeah, Braves were not in it. Um, it's interesting. I don't know if that means that's the only field for him. I'm she surely would like everybody dropping in there with every dollar they can. I think the Giants are 
I wouldn't say they're the favorites. I think they, they got to believe the Dodgers are the favorites. I think the Giants would be in a second tier. Not always, right? Always coming in second, always coming in third, whatever, you know, the, the story with them is. But I think they'll be heavily involved because they have to be involved, Otani. They may not get them, but I think they're going to be involved. They're a team that, A, will be involved, but, B, will have to over-overpay because their history, as you just alluded to, is about finishing second or third or in this last round, getting used for leverage by Aaron Judge. Yep. So they have to be taken as more than just serious bidders. They have to overwhelm with money. And therein lies what I talked about before, which is, does Greg Johnson have the wherewithal to overwhelm Shohei Otani with money? Because you can't just hold, oh, San Francisco's a very cosmopolitan town, and say, well, that'll be enough. Because there are other cosmopolitan towns in America. Um, and even at that, you know, do the Giants look like a team that is one player away from being the best team in baseball? Um, I don't think they are. So if I'm Shohei Otani and I don't want to make a decision based solely on money, there are better places to go to San- than San Francisco. I think it might come down to is what, what is he more interested in putting up great stats as a pitcher or as a hitter? If it's as a pitcher, the Giants are very involved, I believe. Uh, I think it is as a hitter because there's nothing more dramatic than a home run guy hitting 60 home run. You know, there's just nothing more visceral than that. And I think maybe for him, he wants to do both clearly. But yeah. the yeah, Giants is a, are skewed. I think a more neutral field would play more to what he wants to be, in my yeah. opinion. Well, I mean, the, the real question boils down to this. Does he want to win 20 games and hit 20 homers? Or does he want to win 15 games and hit 40 homers? Yep. I think it might be the 40 homers. I, and with I the chance I to hit 60, because, yeah. you know, he might yeah, do 40 that was now. a conservative estimate. <laughs> uh, and I just feel that, you know, Mariners would be the same thing, right? You're not hitting 50, 60 home runs in the Mariners. I mean, I guess Griffey did it, uh, but that was a different part, too. So They will uh, change. The, uh, the, most of these teams will change their part. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you can't Maybe. change the wind wind patterns and that kind of thing, though. That that might be a little bit harder. Uh, we'll see. I mean, you know, that would be the thing. I don't know how else the Giants get themselves one of those stars. So they clearly need a star. There's there's no beyond that. And you talk about you know in 2021 they didn't have. Well, they had they had Buster. You know, had one of the great years of his career. You know, he wasn't Shohei. I mean, a lot of guys have career years. Yeah, but he had a, a, a pretty great pretty great career. I mean, a great a career year in a great career. So, yeah. Oh no, no Buster was. He was clearly the exemplar of that team, but they had a lot of guys who ne- who haven't had good years before then or since. Yep. Um, the the fascinating thing for me is how much damage the Giants may or may not have done by getting played on the on the judge front, and then completely turning the Correa deal into a turnip. Because they couldn't wait to give him all this money. And then all of a sudden, they looked at his medicals. And rather than try to re-engage at a lower number based on, gee, we don't like the medical report, they walked away entirely. And I think if you're an agent, you're going to be real suspicious of that. The Mets did the same thing later, right? So, yeah. you know, I mean, the and then, all- then, then, then they signed another Boris client, right? Is it Conforto or who? I mean, I think they signed another Boris client after the, all this happened with Correa. So, because they because they threw money stops. around. Yeah, stop. Yeah. yeah. But when you haven't nailed down the big player and then you had the offseason with big name players that they did, 
I think most agents are going to look at you as, well, you're kind of, you're not, you're not really a serious player here. Until you get one. They have to figure out how to get around it. Yeah. Until you get one uh, or until you win a World Series or you're in that level, it's going to be, even though we say the Braves don't do that, although, you know, they've paid for Matt Olson, they've played, you know, they paid money. They offered Freddie Freeman an incredible, probably more than the Dodgers offered to keep him. They've paid money, but we just don't see them signing these guys. But because they've won a World Series recently, you, you got to talk to them, right? You, they're in yeah. that level because they're the Braves. They're going to win a lot of games in the next five years. So and then we could go on and on. I, I could just throw topics at you and go, I was almost thinking of doing a speed round, but we won't do that. Uh, maybe the next time you're on, uh, because you you and I can't do a speed round. We have too much to talk to on every uh, talk about on every single topic. But I will ask you a version of a question. I hope I have not asked you before. I might have. But uh, I will ask this anyway, Ray Ratto, what's your favorite movie right now? Right now? Only because it's one of the two I've seen recently. Probably Oppenheimer. It's nice. about half an hour too long. And I think it takes a weird turn about two-thirds of the way through. But I think it's probably the most serious movie of the year. I also watched it the same night that I watched Barbie. Oh, really? You did the both? Wow. And that's something I won't do again. You're such a cultural cliche, Ray. You're just out there with everybody in the lines. That's that, all no, you... that, that was a defector deal. They <laughs> wanted me to do both on the same night. Oh, I missed that. I missed that. Yeah. Um, Barbie was good for an hour and then it just sort of deteriorated. But I thought Open Oppenheimer had enough and enough good actors to make it worth plowing through for the three hours. So right now, that's the one. Um, Are you a Nolan guy? Hmm? Are you a Christopher Nolan guy? I go hot and cold with him. It depends on the movie. But I thought this was, this was, it had a grander scope than most of his others, I thought, because there were a lot of interesting characters there. And I think for the most part, if he could have trimmed about 20 minutes out of it, I think the people who have complaints about it wouldn't have complaints about it. Let's finish. I'll just throw it out there. Garth Hudson, you and I are both fans of him. You are a hugest fan of Garth Hudson. I know the last member of the band. Uh, I would have not never believed he was a, would be the last living member of the band. But what a genius. And a salute to him. Anything you want to add about Garth Hudson uh, at the end of all this? Well, he's the only guy who never had a cocaine problem. <laughs> That we so know. I thought he had a better chance than most of a vo- of lasting longest. And he was also the oldest member of that group. And it was an old group when it mm-hmm. first started. I mean, they, they didn't really hit till they were in their 30s. But he was a little older than that. And the thing that stood out to me is that he was clearly the best musician without ever needing the ego of being out front or even singing, never sang a note in all the years that they were together. Hasn't sung a note since, but did a concert in Canada about four months ago at age 85. Wow. So he's, you know, he he's still considered great by people two generations after him. That's how he, good he is. He held that band together. I mean, incredibly musicians, but you hear them talk about it. And you know me, I love these documentaries. And I don't know if you ever saw the one I recommended, the, the making of the, I think the Big Pink album. But yeah. um, just like they knew, like he, the stuff was going on. There was all the stuff and he was going to tie it together. Somehow he was just going to figure out a way. And I think Bob Dylan, like this was the guy, like, I am going to sit down and record. He loved all the others, obviously loved Robbie Robertson, but 
this guy was like on the basement tapes. He is like the scotch tape to all the kind of the racket going on. Oh, uh, and, and, and kept and and was the one who catalog cataloged all. Oh, he stuff. recorded. Yeah, like he's the one. Like, okay, you're gonna start the recording. Like he, he had to be the guy to make sure that all the stuff was getting on tape. Yeah, but not only, but then he would make sure it was all marked so mm-hmm. that you, know, you knew it was on what reel because there were, I mean, there were hundreds of miles of tape there. Yep. And you know, even the even the stuff that sounded scratchy and weird because the sound you know, in a non-recording studio can be sketchy, you could still pick it out because he was that good at that. He was the most consummate musician, recording artist, probably the last 60 years. Well, I mean, it's hard to argue, hard to argue with the production, hard to argue with all that. I thought he was the craziest member of the band, but maybe not. I mean, they all were crazy in their own ways, but... He was kind of, you know, not not the most coherent speaker in the history of the world. But no, hey. I, I, I always thought that he was just so insular that stuff that sounded good in his head, he never really tried it out on other people. Mm-hmm. So he didn't sort of hone his thoughts or his spoken word to what everybody took as regular conversation. And so care, he, would, right? he would blurt out just sort of stream of consciousness phrases and clauses that you had to listen really hard to make sense of, which is probably another reason why it was a good thing that he never sang. <laughs> all right, Ray, I appreciate all the time gone over the, what I've asked you to do, but uh, as always, appreciate it and appreciate the conversation. See you later, pal. All right, Ray, that's the show for today. <laughs>